Hi, everyone, and welcome to the 48th episode of the Professional Book Nerds Podcast, presented by Overdrive. This is your host, Jill. I'm here with Adam. Hi, Adam. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, and we sound wonderful. We do sound wonderful. I think we maybe finally figured it out. We sound wonderful for the third recording of this introduction that we're doing. Oh, my gosh. Like I was, I was thinking about that we mentioned this in the last episode in the intro where we yeah, used to yeah. take forever to, to yeah. get an intro because we'd just keep recording over and over yeah, again. Yeah, but in the past it was because we were laughing a lot and this time it's because we have all of our fancy new recording equipment finally set up for us. It, well, a start of all of it being fancy and we can't figure out how to use it super properly and we feel guilty bringing our sound guy <laughs> back into the room over and over again. So uh... anyway... This intro should sound great. Hopefully. Yeah, because it's the third time we're recording it, and it's the third time in a row that I am, I can clearly hear how tired I sound, which is wonderful, but that's okay. That's okay. Anyway. Hi. Hi. So tell us about today's episode, sure. Adam. Today's episode is an interview with author Kate Elliott. Uh, she has a new young adult fantasy trilogy. Uh, the second book just came out. The trilogy itself is called The Court of Fives. The second book is called uh, uh, Poison Blade, and I wasn't really aware of her before our conversation and before I did my research for the actual podcast, but she's written 25 fantasy slash sci-fi books, which is crazy. Uh, This is actually her first foray into young adult, so even if you're not a big fan of young adult titles, take a listen, because she has so many other books that are kind of more adult-themed fantasies as well. Um, we got into a big conversation about world building, which is something I'm really fascinated in is how does a fantasy slash sci-fi author build a world and decide what the rules are uh, for nature and, you know, does magic exist and how does it exist and all this really interesting stuff. So um, that was really fun to talk about and kind of pick her brain about, um, she also lives in Hawaii, so she... That, yeah, I'm a little jealous about that. Yeah, she. I'm very jealous, but <laughs> she shared some really cool facts about um, how she spends her time when she's not reading or writing, and um, yeah, she was... We had a really good conversation. I think people will really enjoy it, so um, how can people get a hold of us if they want to do that? They can find us on Fee... Facebook and Twitter, mm-hmm. and email us at feedback at overdrive.com. Yes, they can. We read all of those emails. We do. And also, I mentioned this in the <laughs> in the introduction that will be lost into the world now, uh, but obviously, Jill and I are both on Goodreads, and we don't hide our names or anything, but somebody found me because I put that I'm reading your new book <laughs> on my Goodreads account, and they figured out, oh, there's an Adam who's reading a Jill's book. Maybe it's the Adam and Jill from the Professional Book Nerds, and obviously it is. Uh, and the really cool thing about that is she's in the Netherlands and mentioned that she uses our podcast to keep up to date on what's going on in the book world in the United States because she's originally from America. So that was a really cool thing. I got to see it in my weekend. I forwarded it. I screenshotted it and sent it to you. You did. Um, on you Saturday, did. On Saturday morning. Um, but yeah, I mean, we don't hide those, so if people... Find our personal social media accounts. That's cool. We talk about books there. We do. So um, we promote the ones for our actual company and our podcast. Those are the ones we'd prefer you find us on. But hey, if you find us, we're not going to be mean. So that was a really cool thing. That was really cool. Um, And I'll bring the message and kind of read it out in full perhaps next time. Um, Hey, Joe, what what happens this Friday? 
That was like the worst segue ever. Oh, so bad. <laughs> it's read an ebook day. Yes, it is. Adam. <laughs> and how can people celebrate and all of that good stuff? Um, by reading an ebook. <laughs> no, they can't. I mean, yes, read that, an ebook, obviously. It. Yeah. Um, but if they go on in uh, social media, they can use the hashtag #ebooklove mm-hmm. and tweet about what they're reading and sort of see what everybody else is reading and all sorts of fun stuff like that. And if you go to the website, readanebookday.com, you can get book recommendations. You can see some other author interviews we've done with authors who are kind of joining in on the fun with Read an Ebook Day. Uh, and you can also write comments there if you want to put a longer comment about how you're celebrating ebooks or why you love library ebooks, anything like that. Um, all of that will be kind of entered to win. We're going to give away a bunch of uh, free tablets. So if you use the hashtag ebooklove or put a comment on readanebookday.com, both of those will kind of enter you to win. So very easy. Um, if you have any literary t-shirts or you're reading your ebook someplace fun, feel free to send those along to us uh, using that hashtag and yeah, tag us and all that good stuff. Sounds good. Yeah. Anything else that people should know? I don't think so. Okay. Well, before we mess up and have to do a fourth introduction i hope you all enjoy this interview with kate elliott on the professional book nerds podcast hi everyone this is adam from team overdrive and today i'm joined by kate elliott the author of 25 fantasy and science fiction novels including her new epic fantasy black wolves and a ya fantasy uh, the court of fives trilogy which we'll be discussing today kate thank you so much for taking some time and chatting with us thank you so much adam so i just have to say first off right off the bat 25 fantasy and science fiction novels that is quite a feat. When you first kind of started the, I came up with the idea of being a writer for a living. Did you ever imagine having that many titles with your name on those books? You know, I, I, first of all, you have to understand that that's over 28 years of being published. So I like to say that I'm old, um, and that I've been around a long time. I know people who've been publishing for as long as me, who've written two, three, four times as much as me. And I know people who've been writing for 10 or 12 years who've written, who've published more books than me. So did I think I would be able to make a career out of writing? I hoped so, because it was really the thing I could most most imagine doing. Um, But, you know, there's no bets in this business. It's a rough business. Um, It's hard. And longevity is, to me, like the hardest part of it, just to adapt to changing aesthetics, different kinds of narrative, just to stick it out with the, the good parts and the bad parts and, you know, when you're depressed and things aren't going well. So really, you just have to be incredibly stubborn. And the one thing I have always been since I was very young is very stubborn. So I knew I had that in my favor. So. <laughs> That's, that's where it is. <laughs> so speaking of kind of changing narratives and, and maybe changing audience as well, um, the books that we're going to talk about in just a moment here, the Court of Five series that you're working on right now, these are your oh. first kind of dive into the young adult audience. Is that correct? They are. So what kind and of... Made... You know, young adult, I just was going to say young adult in this particular kind of big, ticket marketing category that we have now. I call it the post-Twilight, post-Harry Potter category. It didn't really exist. There were 
books written for teens and juveniles um, and children's literature back when I was young, but it wasn't like this. So it's, that's actually changed. And so was that kind of your reason for, for diving into to YA is the the fact that there is this market now for, for these types of titles and this availability for this kind of um, this subsection of of younger readers and you know adult readers is that kind of why you decided to dive into those? Well, a, a little bit, but actually, I would say that there were were two reasons, two main reasons I did it. One is, you know, I've been writing adult science fiction and fantasy for my whole career, and one of the interesting things, you know, when I was young, the stories I. I'm an outdoor child. I'm the kind I always wanted to be climbing trees when I was young. I wanted to go on adventures. And when I was a kid, when I was a girl, that was kind of like, we were told that was what boys wanted to do. And the stories that I loved reading the most, they were always about boys. So when I started writing, I said, you know what, I'm going to put girls in these stories. and I'm going to put women in these stories. And that kind of became kind of my overarching goal as I wrote kind of like if I make a career of this, I'm going to put women and girls at the center of these stories. And there's always been a little, a little or a lot of pushback. Um, when, whenever anyone who kind of wasn't included in those stories before, and it may be because they're women, it may be because they're people of color, uh, it may be because they're queer, there's a lot of different reasons. But when those people start writing themselves or writing those stories in, there's always some pushback. And so for me as a writer, what was really appealing about the modern young adult market is that no one thinks twice if there's an adventurous fantasy or science fiction story that centers a girl. And it's like you still kind of, not so much today, but, but back when I was younger, you still kind of had to make excuses why it was okay to have so many women in my epic fantasy. When we knew that women never did anything in the Middle Ages, which isn't even true, but that was kind of the expectation. Right. So I, I, I just wanted to write a story where I would never have to say, people would just say, well, of course it's about a girl. And that was just, for me, very freeing. And then the other reason I have to tell you is that I, like, built my, my skills on writing these huge epic fantasy novels with a cast of thousands and all these details <laughs> and, you know, a hundred kingdoms and all their wars and histories and everything. And I wanted, I, 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 as writers, we don't often talk about ways we struggle in our craft. Mm -hmm. But for me, the two things that have been a consistent thing I struggled to get better at were, um, making my pacing work consistently across a whole story. So sometimes I might have had some slow spots. Um, and then maybe having a few too many details in there because I love world building. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I looked at YA and I said, you know what? They won't let me get away with that. <laughs> they will teach me. The editors will say, you can't do that. You can't do that. And they will teach me. If I do a YA, I will learn how to pace faster and I will learn how to strip out the details that aren't absolutely necessary and still build a world that seems different. And so those are the two. So really, I did it for myself, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And so when you were writing The Court of Fives, and you're still you know, writing the, the trilogy, I would imagine, since the second one is just coming out, and we'll get to those in just a moment, but I'm curious, was that kind of the main difference for you between writing adult fantasy and then this young adult is 
kind of keeping yourself almost streamlined in your writing process? Oh, yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm talking about it. I I have three kids, and they were basically, I, I sold my first novel when I was pregnant with my first child. So I've always kind of juggled books and babies. And my kids were raised with me being a writer. So now that they're, they're all in their 20s now, and I often talk to them about writing. Um, I consult with them about plotting. I'll say, oh, what should I do? And I'm, I'm sure I whine too much to them too, but <laughs> they're really great. Um, so I was talking with one of my sons just yesterday, and I said, because I'm planning um, another YA project, which is going to be a space opera. And, and I was going, so what do we do about X and Y? And he says, well, we need... And then he started... He started telling me all these things, and I said, no, we can only have one. We can't have three. We can only have one. And he goes, no, no, you have to have three. It's a, a historical thing. You have to have these three different countries. And I said, no, I can only have one. <laughs> and, and I thought, see, I'm already, you know, I, I, I'm already learning to look at the plot and say, I've got to streamline this plot. I've got to make it fit, fit in 90,000 words instead of being 200,000 words. Because mm-hmm. I've written a lot of 200,000-word novels. And they needed that space to, to, to be because there were five point of view characters and three plot lines threaded together. But this is one plot line centered around one person mm-hmm. um, in a much shorter thing. So, yeah, this has been, I'm still learning. But, and I even think across court of fives that I can see myself how much I've learned with each book. Mm-hmm. And so you just. And, and I love that. I want to say that I love that. Half the fun for me is when I'm challenging myself as a writer, because I've been writing for 28 years, but I'm still learning. I think as artists, we're always still learning, and it, if I ever stopped learning, I would stop. You just, okay, you just touched on like 10 things that I want to unpack, but before yeah. but before I do that, uh-huh. um, before I get myself too carried away in the craft of writing, because I could talk about that all day with authors, oh, yeah. um, before we do that, would you mind maybe giving our listeners an introduction to the Quarter 5 series in case they're not familiar with it, because I don't want to talk for you know a half hour and not let you actually talk about the books that we were supposed to talk about. So I will shut up and let you maybe introduce our listeners to the Quarter 5s. Okay, so I actually have. I have to prepare this because I'm not good at doing um, these naturally. So I do have something prepared. <laughs> sure. So buckle down. Buckle down. I'm ready. Okay, so my publisher, my publisher pitched Court of Five as The Hunger Games meets Game of Thrones. And, and that's because it has a dangerous game in it. It has family drama and it has bloody political intrigue. But I wanted to come up with my own pitch for it. So because pitches are where it's at these days. So this is what I can say. It's, so this is the introduction to the pitch. It's set in the country of Aphaea, which was conquered 100 years earlier by a people called the Sarawis. The protagonist is a girl named Jessamy. She's the second of four biracial sisters who are born to a father and a mother who can't legally marry because he's Sarawis and she's a fan. The fives that are in the title, the fives is the game. And it's like a big obstacle course with four obstacles around the outside and the fifth obstacle in the center. And there's a mystery to the fives that Jess doesn't know when the story starts. So competing in the fives is what Jess has always wanted to do. And and I personally wanted to write a story about a girl who's an athlete. Mm -hmm. Um, But because the sisters have been raised with the father's rigid cultural expectations, she is not allowed to 
to run the flags, but she sneaks out to do it anyway. <laughs> and then Jessamy meets uh, a boy named Cal on a flags court, and she's exactly a person, her parents, and everyone else tell her that she must have nothing to do with. And then, of course, disaster strikes. So, so my pitch goes like this. Little women meet American ninja warrior in a fantasy world inspired by Cleopatra's Egypt. I love that so much. That's so good. (laughs) (laughs) It took me a long time to write that. Oh, but it's perfect. I I actually saw that on your website, the the Little Women Meets American Ninja Warrior, and I kind of like, I literally chuckled to myself before I was diving into these books. I was like, that is something that would capture the imagination of so many people. So I love it. That's fantastic. Well, and I love that show. And one of the things I love about the show America, there's two things I love. I'm sorry, I have to just say this. There's two things I love about American Ninja Warrior (laughs) besides the fact that it's just fun. Um, One is, is that women compete exactly the same as men. Mm -hmm. And and the other is that, and, and this isn't related to the, so that I used in the book. And, this, and the other one is just me. People are always cheering for you to succeed, mm-hmm. for, for the, the competitors to succeed in that. And I love that. Um, it, it just, it's just, it's so affirming. So anyway, I love that show. Yeah. And then, so something you mentioned a little bit earlier, and it's one of the things that I really love about fantasy books is you're, you know, quite literally entering another world oftentimes. And I'm mm-hmm. always curious when I talk to authors, for you, what is it like when you're, building out a new world from scratch. So you're setting up the atmosphere and kind of deciding like the laws of nature. You literally have an open sandbox to do whatever it is that you want. So how do you, when you're starting and you're coming up with a new idea, I don't want to, you know, do the, the cheesy question of where do you get your ideas from come from, but you know, like how do you decide when you're building out a new world, like in the court of fives, you know, who is, the leading, you know, class and what about magic and all these different things? How do you kind of build out those worlds in your mind? Wow, I could talk for hours on this (laughs) subject, but I will spare you and try to do a five-minute answer. Um, (laughs) You know, it's funny because I started, like, drawing maps of imaginary places when I was really young, and I don't know why it attracts me. I've always loved maps. I've always loved the idea of going somewhere else. Um, so that's so that's just what I gravitated to when I was a teenager and became a young teen and began writing. I would draw maps and then I would start setting stories in them. Uh, and also, I was a huge lover of the Lord of the Rings, which I read when I was thirteen for the first time. Mm-hmm. But now, when I when I draw when I develop a world. The, the first thing I do is I make a map, and but but a map we think of a map as like a physical map that's drawn of mountain ranges and roads and rivers and oceans, and that is one kind of a map. But the other kind of map, and this is something I tell people all the time now when I talk about world building, the other kind of map is kind of the map in our own minds of how we fit in the world and in the society we live in. And my biggest pet peeve is when I come across fantasy worlds in which people are just like themselves. It's like modern, say, modern American, middle class, you know, white people 
living in a fantasy world with swords and fancy clothes, you know, and they ride horses. <laughs> and I, I don't object to people writing those books. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's fine. People should write whatever they want because we can love a whole range of different kinds of stories. What bothers me is when those kinds of stories are seen as um, a different kind of world, when really they're doing something else, they're giving us, it, again, if we want to read a story about ourselves dressed up in fantasy clothes and having adventures, that's perfectly legitimate. Mm-hmm. If we're trying, if you're trying to build a, a world that's different than ours, you got to start by thinking, how do these people interact? What do they think the cosmology is? Why do they think the world is the way it is? How do they relate to each other? What are the rules in this world? You know, and magic, how does, if there's magic, how does that alter it? If they're in outer space, how has that changed how we think about the world? So I always think of that internal map as the place I start. And then for me, in terms of inspiration, usually it comes from history or from something I read. So my husband is an archaeologist, and he has, is currently involved in an archaeological project in the Delta region of Egypt where he's excavating a Greco-Roman site. So this is about, this is about the era of Cleopatra. Uh-huh. Um, and when he started working there, I hadn't done that much reading about that period in Egypt. I mostly, you know, most of us read about the Egypt in the Old Kingdom, the time of the, the, the old pharaohs and the big temples. Right. But when I read, when he started working on this, I started getting interested in it, and I said, you know what, this period, when you have an outside group of people who've come and conquered this civilization, which was at that time like the old, considered the oldest and most sophisticated civilization, but they were now being ruled by these kind of outsiders, this, like this thin class of outsiders. And I thought, what an incredible conflict is embedded in that situation. So as a world builder, I look for, I want to create a world that has conflicts built into the way the world is, the way the world functions. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So that's my really, really short version. (laughs) I could, like I said, I could go on for like hours. (laughs) Okay, so something that I'm always, that always makes me laugh about fantasy stories and even just really world building when it comes to authors who write books is people uh, like to give authors really hard time for kind of like staying in the world that they've built. A perfect example is like J.K. Rowling. Everyone keeps like it's like a running joke on social media and in the literary world. Like why doesn't she just leave that world alone? She built it and just let it lie as it is or like you know why won't George R. R. Martin finish up his his books and kind of move on and as a as a reader and someone who kind of gets to interact with authors a lot. I totally get not being able to move on from a world you spend all this time building. And you've written and created tons and, you know, so many different worlds. Is there any ever, like, a kind of a tug at your heart a little bit when you're moving on from, say, a trilogy or a series or a world you've created? Is there ever kind of like that? Because I imagine there being, like, a, a catharsis when you're done with a book but is there a sort of like a sadness when you're done in a world that you've spent all this time creating? Yeah, I, 
I've been fortunate in being able to create new worlds because um, I love doing it and because I have something different I want to say with each new world I've created. I, I will say, I'm probably, I probably, you know, if, if, if I had a series that was as best-selling as J.K. Rowling or George Martin, uh, it probably would be hard for me to leave it just because publishers would want me to keep writing in it. That's fair. You know what I mean? But, but because I haven't had that level of success, people are happy for me to, like, create a new world, because each new world is like, oh, hey, a new world, like the <laughs> Elliot, right? Um, in terms of leaving, it, it depends on the series. I, that Black Wolves, which came out last November, mm-hmm. is actually a second trilogy set in the same universe as my Crossroads trilogy, which uh, begins with the, with the novel Spirit Gate. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote um, the Crossroads trilogy, I knew that there was going to be a second trilogy, and that I knew that I had two different stories to tell that were linked, but that weren't like all one story, because they're, they're separated by about 60 years. Sure. Um, so I knew I would come back to that. But usually when I finish a story, I need a break from it. I have to say that Crown of Stars, which is my seventh volume epic fantasy series that I was started in 1997 and finished in, I think, 2005. Um, by the time I got to the end of that, I was like, okay, I'm done, right? I have yeah. written so many words in this that I'm just done. I need a break. And it's only now that, like, I think every once in a while, I think, hmm, I could write a story set 300 years later there. But I'm not ready to do it. So right. a lot of it is I'm just tired. Yeah, and I want to move on to something else. Um, that, that's so. For example, when I finish, I'm just finishing the third quarter five volume now, mm-hmm. and there are a couple of shorter stories, like novelette or no- novella length stories about side characters that I wouldn't mind writing. But at the moment, I don't have any plans to write a second trilogy set in the same world. Sure. In five years, I might have an idea for that. But right now, I'm like ready to go write this space opera and to write the sequel to Black Wolves, right? So I always have a lot of stuff churning through my head. I guess you make a really good point. As a you know, as a reader, I can I can digest a whole series of books in a short amount of time. Like you're absolutely right. As a as an author, you're spending you know sometimes almost a decade and a half, two decades in a world. I suppose at that point, you probably could use a little bit of a break. Well, I mean, I look at a, look, look, look the example of Jim Butcher. He's another bestseller. Absolutely. And he, um, so he's writing this, uh, the, what's the name? The of Dresden what's Files. What's the name of his hero? Harry Dresden. Yeah. Right? But notice that he's written two different, he wrote an uh, entire short fantasy series that was like three or four volumes. And then, and now he's doing something else, like a steampunk series, right? So he's kind of taking a break while he's writing this, I think it's going to be, what, 10, 20 volumes, yeah. the whole series. So he, he himself is taking a break during it. And, and Kevin Hearn, who's um, a great guy, by the way, uh, who's with his Hunted series, mm-hmm. the, the Druid series, the Immortal Druid series, he's just now finishing up um, that series. I think he has one more to go, but he's working on an epic fantasy. So he's, you know, shaking it up, too. I I do think you need to kind of shake things up a bit. Yeah. And every once in a while, I will meet a writer who really is satisfied and has enough to say in their one world 
that they're happy to stay there. And I think that's fine too. Mm-hmm. All right, so, so I have to ask, as you mentioned, you, you're finishing up the Quarter Fives trilogy from a, a writing standpoint, and you're interested in getting mm-hmm. into this you know, space opera you're writing and the, the sequel, the, you know, the second book from, for Black Wolves. For you, you've written so many things and you're writing so many things, and both you know, solo and as a part of collaborations. So how does that work in your brain? Do you write kind of one thing at a time, or are you able to multitask and kind of bounce back and forth between stories as you go? I know. I, 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 I'm most, I, I kind of do both. Like I have my forebrain that, that I'm, I can work on one story at a time. Um, and then, but then I have stuff churning around in my back brain and I might like be making notes, you know, offhand or, uh, but I don't, Harry Turtledove, who you may, I'm sure you know him, uh, his name. Yes. He, I, I once heard that he would write, he like had, in the morning he would write X novel project, and then he would have lunch, and then in the afternoon he would write Z novel project. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> I think I can, so I have been working, you know, like I wrote Court of Fives, and then I wrote Black Wolves, and then I wrote um, Poison Blade, and um, Buried Heart, which is the third Court of Fives book. Right. And now I'm going to go back to um, the second Black Wolves book. But I've been making notes and stuff on that, but I haven't been trying to write first draft of it right now. Um, so. And do you... but, but I will say one thing. Every writer I know, when they're on deadline, they have like... You know, like the like the the valve, the release valve project. <laughs> right. Something that they'll just take a break and write something they're not supposed to be writing, mm-hmm. just to just to take a break from the pressure and the stress of a deadline. So I have that's where the, my space opera started. And so for you, you know, I sat down and wrote five thousand words, <laughs> right? Because I just had to do that. Right. I was stressed about you know something else. Right, so when you're writing, you mentioned kind of making notes for other stories and things like that. When you're actually writing a novel, though, do you write it? linearly like do you write it kind of from start to finish even though you have these notes sort of throughout or or are you the type of person that might write a scene that you know is going to come up at the end or you know write the ending first those you know i guess how what's your writing process like for you i I, i'm i'm pretty much a first draft linear writer uh i i wish i i kind of wish i wasn't but i seem to be that way it seems to me that i need to write it in one, in, in a linear thing, because like a scene, especially if I have, especially in epic fantasy where I may have multiple point of view characters, right. what I discover is that even if you have two characters whose plots are kind of separated by space, and that maybe they don't come together till the end, it just feels like something will happen in one person's, like someone will will go swimming in their chapter and then in the next chapter by this other character something involving water will happen mm-hmm. but you see there's like these these, these things happen that connect them even though they're not directly connected by plot mm-hmm. um, and so I don't know I just seem to have to write that way I do know people who write like scenes totally out of order right? and I admire that but I think the most important thing to say briefly to people who are listening to this who are writing is that there isn't one way there's the way that works for you. I yeah I com- that's like my rule. Yeah, I completely Figure out the way that works for you. 
All right, so speaking of that, because I completely agree. I, I've spoken to authors who have a very strict writing schedule. You know, they'll get up first thing in the morning and they'll start writing, or I've talked to other ones who just kind of keep a notepad with them and they write any time that they, the creativity hits. So for you, do you keep yourself on like a strict schedule or is it just when something comes up, you know that you need to get to a computer or a notebook? My process has changed a lot because when I was first writing, I had infants, toddlers, preschoolers, elementary schoolers, teenagers, and I had to write differently then if I wanted to get anything written. And then once the kids were out of the house, it was like suddenly, I'm like, it's like this pasture, right? And I'm like, (laughs) there's an artist who said that, that once her kids were out of the house, she she did her art as a cow grazes kind of thing. So um, I can't remember her name, otherwise I would credit her with that observation. But so my process has changed. I do try, for instance, if I'm writing first draft, I make a commitment to write 2,000 words a day, five days a week. So I'm writing 10,000 words a week. And I try to stick with that and maybe it will take me six days to write it. Maybe I'll do it in four days and get a little more done that week. Um, and I do that so I can kind of stay on, so I can stay on schedule. Um, but there's also a lot of flexibility built in for me. So I may have a week where I'm working 12, 14 hour days on revisions. And then I may have a week where I really only work two or three hours a day for that week mm-hmm. because it's, I'm doing something else or because I'm tired or because I'm busy with something. It, it, so it just, so, I try to maintain a basic routine because, I, but that's partly just because my personality likes routine. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that's totally understandable. I'm, I always wrestle with if I was a writer the way that I would do it. I think I would be the same. I think I would need a schedule to kind of keep myself grounded and being like, look, you need to be writing for these hours to make sure I would get something done. That's, so, um, yeah, okay. and, and that, but I mean, my main thing is be adaptable. Mm-hmm. What works for you this year? What works for you when you have, you know, a, a, a two-year-old and infant twins, which was my situation. <laughs> I, I had a book due. I, I, the book was due in, the, the book was due in August, and the twins were due in October, and the twins arrived in August, and I actually turned the book in in October. It was like three-quarters done when I gave birth to them. But imagine, so for, you know. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know. So... You know, you, you, you have to adapt to the situation you're in and not say that there's only one way I can do this. Because then if you can't do it that way, you're kind of screwed, yeah. right? So my big thing is adaptability. Yeah. Right. Um, so given that we're Overdrive is a library company, I always like asking authors, do you have like a first or a favorite memory of a library you'd be willing to share? Let me think about that. I... Um, was a child who was constantly checking out books from the library. Do you remember what you were checking um, out when you were younger? I liked animal stories. Mm-hmm. Um, Jim Kelgard, the Misty of Shinkachi books, man, anything with animals in it. Uh, the Black the Island Stallion. <laughs> <laughs> So I went through a whole thing, and then and then as a young teen, then I, I kind of switched over. I read Lord of the Rings and Ray Bradbury, and I kind of switched over into fantasy mm-hmm. novels. 
Um, but they, I, the, the main, when, before I had my kids, but when, post-college, but before I had my kids, I would go to the library for like four to six hours at a time and work just before I was published. Mm-hmm. And, and I would just block out that time. And so to me, libraries are havens. They're havens that are like quiet places where I can concentrate. And even today, if I'm struggling with, with a book, like uh, my novel Trader's Gate was mostly written at the library because I just, for some reason, I couldn't write it at home. Mm-hmm. So I would just go to the library. And it was like, when I was there, I felt protected and kind of in a, like there was a shield over me that I could, and it, that allowed me to concentrate. I love so I love libraries. I, I feel at home. I feel so at home at a library. Oh, I absolutely love that, and I, I couldn't agree more. Um, okay, so when you're not writing, how do you like to spend your time? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So I happen to be fortunate enough to live in Hawaii because my husband got a job here, so I was forced to move here. I wanted to ask you about that, so go ahead. I'll just be over here jealously in Cleveland, so continue. Yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) Um, But so what I do in my spare time is I paddle outrigger canoes. Um, And like world building, I can talk about outrigger canoes, (laughs) canoe racing for hours and bore people to tears. But the outrigger canoe, briefly is an adaptation by the Polynesian people, because, you know, there are these islands strung all across the Pacific. Mm-hmm. And, you know, two, three thousand years ago, they, the Pacific Islands were colonized by these voyagers in these double-hauled canoes. And what's interesting about the outrigger canoe is it has a float that's attached to it. Um, and it's an adaptation for people who live on islands in the open ocean so that the way the surf comes straight into the islands with no barrier means that you need that the float that's attached on these, what they're called yako, but they're like little spars that attach the float to the main canoe. Uh-huh. It means that your, your canoe isn't going to tip over. It gives you flexibility to ride the waves mm-hmm. and to absorb the shifting, the swells. Um, and it's how people got to Hawaii. So it is. So people think of Hawaii as surfing. And surfing did originate here. But the, the state sport of Hawaii is outrigger canoe paddling. Because um, that's how people got here. And also because it's something you do together. Uh-huh. And so I, and there are a number of clubs here. And there's different, there's, sprint racing and short long distance and long long distance and that's what I do for fun and exercise well as someone who's been fortunate enough to visit Hawaii a few times I can tell you I am truly truly jealous that you get to wake up every morning there I it's my favorite place in the world I'm so jealous of it it's beautiful it's beautiful here and the ocean here is is just is beautiful I'm a water baby yeah I feel the same way anytime as I said I've been there a few times my wife and I went to Maui for our our honeymoon and just waking up every morning it was just like yeah this I could get used to this it was wonderful oh that way yeah that sounds lovely Mm -hmm. okay so I like to end all of our podcasts with what I like to I call them the nerd nine so just nine rapid fire questions um, okay. They're they're easy, I promise. But do, don't give them too much thought. Just whatever pops up in your head first. Okay. All right. So the first one is, what's the last book you read? Uh, the High Ground by Melinda Snodgrass. What's your favorite place to read? 
In a chair. <laughs> uh, what is your guilty pleasure? Mine would be like I look up way too many pictures of dogs, even though I have two of them already. Oh, <laughs> my guilty pleasure. Uh, okay, my guilty pleasure is the toffee doodle cookie at Starbucks. Ooh, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one place you'd like to travel that you haven't yet been. Oh, man, I want to do the whole Silk Road. Ooh. It takes three months. Yes. That's a good one. We, My wife and I just got done watching the second season of Marco Polo, so that's very much on my mind. So that's, uh, I like that one. That's good. Um, your favorite holiday? My favorite holiday? Um, I'm going to say Passover because... You get to eat according to a plan <laughs> and tell a story. Back to your schedule like you were talking about. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> what's your favorite movie? Seven Samurai, the original. Uh, cats or dogs? Dogs. <laughs> Sorry, dogs. <laughs> uh, favorite food? Mm. Raspberries. Nice. And then if you could have dinner with one person, alive or dead, who would you pick? Well, my dad. He passed away in 2013. That is a perfectly acceptable answer. See, you didn't have a problem with those at all. That was very, very easy. Um, I just have one last question for you. If uh, Oh, that's okay. <laughs> so the last question is, what do you hope people take away from reading your books? That's a great question. Give me a second. I gotta sure, think about this. Absolutely. That's why I use it as the final question because I'm very proud of it. <laughs> you know, what I love most is when people say, I feel like this was a real place that I really visited, that I was really immersed in. I like that a lot. That's really good. Um, anything else you'd like our readers to know about your books or anything at all before I let you go? Uh, I can't think of anything offhand. You've done such a great job asking <laughs> great questions. Well, anytime you can end the podcast with, uh, you know, letting the host feel a little bit better about themselves, that's always a great place to end. So, Kate, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Adam. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can add these titles to their collections and marketplace. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly. And our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.